0: Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of Biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio, with your host, Melissa Cancola. That's right, I'm the host of Truth Be Told Radio, Melissa Cancola, and I'm going to get started with our lesson. This is... Dr. Vodi, welcome with Do Not Love the World, here on Truth Be Told Radio.
1: Well, good morning. It is a delight to be back at Ligonier. It has been far too long. If you have your Bibles with you, Open them to the Book of First John. First John, chapter two. First John, chapter two. We find here what is, in many ways, a, a very controversial text. But I think is a text critical for our day, and I'll explain why. First, let's look at it, beginning of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away uh, with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In one way, this passage seems like it ought to collapse under the weight of other texts. It, it, It appears to be completely out of place and almost contradictory in light of the fact that we as Christians are not just lovers. We're profligate lovers. We, we are called to love like nobody's business. We love because God is loved. We love because God first loved us. We love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor, as ourselves. There are myriad commands to love one another. In fact, that's how the world knows that we're Christians, by our love and our love for one another. But not only our love for one another, we love our enemies. By love we fulfill the law. The Apostle Paul says in Romans thirteen eight to 10 Owe no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then there's the issue of the world. This seems to contradict our most beloved verse in the Bible, John three, sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So I can make this text of ours so confusing. In light of all of this, it comes as a shock to the system. When we read the words, do not love, and yet there they are, do not love. Even when I just let that sit there, you don't like it. You're like, finish the sentence. I want you to hear those words, do not love. It's a command which means that if we violate it, we're in sin. In other words, love can be sinful. Remember, I told you this is an important word for our day. Love can be sinful. We live in the midst of a culture that needs to hear that. It needs to hear that from us because it's it's coming at us with this whole love is love mentality, and and how can you be against love? Nobody can be against love. Certainly Christians can't be against love because God is love, and we are called to love. Therefore, how can you stand in the way of any two people who love one another? Our text today makes it very clear that there are instances when love can be sinful. In other words, this is more than just a theoretical, theological discussion for us to have. This is a very practical rubber meets the road issue this issue of love being sinful, the question is, what makes love sinful? What could possibly make love sinful? Under what circumstances would love be considered sinful? First of all, love becomes sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. Love becomes sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world. Now, it's very important to note that this word world, especially in Johannine literature, it is used in at least three different ways. First of all, the world can refer to uh, creation. You see this in John 1, John 3, John 4, John 6, John 7, John 8, over and over again. This word cosmos refers to all the world, to all the created universe. John is not saying here that we should not love this universe, this world, this earth that God created. That's not what's being said here. Secondly, the term world refers to the people that inhabit this world that God created. And God is not saying, do not love people, do not love mankind. Absolutely not. We, we, we know that it doesn't mean that. Because the love that we're called to give, even to our enemies, look at the great commandment, love the Lord. You God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So John can't be talking about that first world here, and he can't be talking about that second world here. That would be a contradiction. However, there's a third use of the term world. And that third use refers to the spiritual realm that is in opposition to God and in rebellion against his kingdom. It is that third sense of world. That is being discussed here. So when John says, do not love the world, he says, your love becomes sinful when it's directed at that system that is anti-God, that system that is anti-kingdom, that system that is satanic. And he makes it obvious that it's satanic. Because he uses it several times here, even in first John. John writes that by faith the Christian is able to overcome the world in first John five, four and five. In our text he says the world passes away. In chapter three, verse one, he says the world is ignorant of God. In three thirteen he says the world hates believers. In 4.1, one, he says it's the abode of false prophets. And for three, it's the abode of the Antichrist. And in four five, it's the abode of unbelievers. And last, the whole world is controlled by the evil one. It is obvious here that when John refers to world in this text, he's referring to that world that is under the control of our adversary, the devil. That world that is spiritual and ideal- ideological and at war with our king and his kingdom. And we are told, do not love that world. Not at all. Listen to Calvin. He said before, that the only rule for living religiously is to love God. But as when we are occupied with the vain love of the world, we turn away all our thoughts and affections another way. This vanity must first be torn away from us in order that the love of God may reign within us. Until our minds are cleansed, the former doctrine may be iterated a hundred times but with no effect. It will be like pouring water on a ball. You can gather, no, not a drop, because there is no empty place to retain the water. Like pouring water on a ball. When your affections, when your love is pointed toward the world,
0: there is no room
1: for the love of God. Because when your love and your affections are pointed toward the world, they are pointed toward that which opposes God. Thus love can become sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. James says something similar in James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No man can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other. This is an either-or situation. You cannot love the world and love God simultaneously. In fact, in our regeneration, in, in, in our salvation, we are taken out of the world. We're taken out of that system. We're brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We transfer kingdoms. We transfer allegiances. But if our love is still for the world, our allegiance has not legitimately been transferred which is why in 2.19, just after our passage, John says, they went out from among us. Because they were not all of us. If they had been of us, they would remain. But they left. So that it might be known, so that it might be obvious, so that we might see that, that they were never ours. They were never his. Because they're their affections were pointed at the system that is opposed to God. First John five four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world: our faith. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17:16. they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. John 17:18. as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Again, we've been sent into the world to proclaim the gospel but we're not of this world. We're in this world, but not of this world, and we're most assuredly not to love this world. A great way to see this picture is to think about the love that a man is commanded to have for his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a love that... Husbands are called to give exclusively to their wives, and the moment you turn that love onto another, you are guilty of idolatry. It's the same point here:
0: the moment you
1: turn that love that we are called to have for God, that love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. The minute you turn that to the world out of which you were saved, that minute you are communicating the fact that you do not have the love of God or love for God. Beloved, we must constantly examine our hearts, for the presence of this love of the world. Now, be careful here because there's a, a tendency to take this in very wrong directions. We, we, we've got we've to fight with worldliness, and so what that means is you don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew or date the girls that do, right? <laughs> Not what this is. That's the enemy's sleight of hand. Because I can love alcohol and not drink it. Amen? I can love drugs and not take them. I, 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 can love, I, I, I can love these things. My passions and my affections can be pointed in these directions, and yet my legalism and my moralism says I'm better, not just than I was, but I'm better than you. Amen? Amen? the urge because I don't participate I still love it with every fiber of my being John's not saying here don't participate in the world he says don't love the world we must develop the in order to determine the difference. But not only that, love becomes sinful when it arises from the wrong source. Not only when it's it's pointed in the wrong direction, pointed toward the wrong object, but when it arises from the wrong source. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, so there's a problem first with the object and now here there's a problem with the source. That, that this love for the world arises from the world. Just like our love for God and for the things of God Arises from God It is God who gives us the capacity To love God Here we have a love That is arising from a different Source The first two categories that are mentioned here Cravings and lust Are sinful desires Hosting, however, is sinful behavior from internal to external. The first two are internal and hidden sins. The last one is revealed. The first two pertain to the individual person. The last one pertains to this person. In community with others, Mr. Demacher says. Three categories. Cravings, lust, boasting. These things arise from the world. Cravings. Inordinate desires for things. And again, we have to separate these. Two. When we say cravings, and 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 lust and those things. We have to recognize that we're talking about this third world and not the first two. For example, in that first world, I can love the beauty of a sunset. I can love the beauty of a perfectly cooked steak. Sorry, but I can I can. I can love the beauty of music, art. Again, those things in this world that God has made. I can and I must love the people whom God has created in this world. But the kind of love that I have for those things is a love that arises from God himself, even those loves can be perverted. And so now, instead of me loving the beauty of a sunset or a beauty of God's created order, now I worship God's created order. I worship the creature rather than the creator. Rather than loving the the beauty of those things that God has given us, now all of a sudden those things become means to an end, to satisfying myself, to gratifying my flesh, to quenching my lustful desires. That's when they've crossed a boundary. And then there are these most things. That's when it gets outward. My cravings, my lust, and then my pride. True love can lead me to share my testimony. Pride can make me exaggerate it. True love can cause me to use my voice to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Pride makes me love the sound of my voice so that I just talk too much. True love can lead me to share a story, but my pride causes me to make myself the hero of every story I tell. Can make me one of those people who
0: constantly gives you their resume.
1: That's what it looks like. Looks like when it becomes outward. True love can show gratitude for the things with which God has blessed me, but, but my pride can make me constantly give you the price tag right. of those things so that you can be impressed. Uh, are you smelling one of stepping in? Our love can become sinful based on its direction and based on its source. But finally, and ultimately, and most importantly, our love becomes sinful when it produces the wrong fruit. When it leads to wrong ends. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here you have these, these, these two opposite ends, on the one hand, you have this world that is passing away, and on the other hand, you have a God who abides forever. Love becomes sinful when it leads to wrong ends and produces wrong fruit. Our passions become sinful
0: when they are pointed
1: in directions that lead to death and destruction as opposed to leading to life. First Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The point of time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is there is no Life there And this leads us Back to what I was mentioning earlier The poignant way in which this is So pertinent to our times Because of the love is love crowd Particularly in the area of same-sex marriage How can you be opposed same-sex marriage when same-sex marriage is just about people who love each other being allowed to express that love. That's a love that's pointed at the wrong object. That is not a love that comes from God or that brings glory and honor to God. It is pointed at the wrong object. It is a love that arises from the wrong source. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 1. Beginning of verse 18, familiar passage, but I want us to look at it. (laughs) For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Here we are, these lusts, these desires to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. The desires themselves are dishonorable. Enough already with this gay Christian stuff. And I don't just say enough already. I don't mean this in the sense of, you know, they're over there and I'm over here. I mean this in the the pastoral sense.
2: How cruel
1: is that? If a man comes to me talking about a desire for a woman who is not his wife, I'm not going to tell him to just go ahead and embrace the desire because the desire in and of itself is okay. It's not. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. There is the fact. it in the wrong direction, it is arising from the wrong source, and it is producing bad fruit. Therefore, it falls into the category of love that is sinful. It falls into the category of love that does not glorify God. It falls into the category of love for that third version of the word world, not the first. God's created order, not the second, people in the world, but that third, that system that is openly opposed all that God is and that rebels against the reign of God kingdom and that is precisely where we are brothers and sisters and not only that this rebellion is no longer covert but it has become overt It is out there, and it is in our faces, and unfortunately it is being urged along by people within the church who are essentially arguing that love is always righteous. Love is always godly. Love is always appropriate because God loves everyone and God loves everything. And right here, the Bible says, do not love. There are some loves that are out of bounds. There are some loves that are unacceptable. In other words, there are some loves that are not truly love. And if you're here today and you, you wrestle with that, let me say to you that the last thing you need to do is to give in to that love and define yourself by it. Because that's love of the world. Do not love the world. Do not love based on your passions and your desires. But love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, which means your passions are to be turned in his direction and no other We must reject a lie that says there is no love that is out of bounds. Because ultimately, that lie that says there is no love that's out of bounds is a lie that says there is no truth in God. I'm a father, nine times over. What that means is I am very well acquainted with the fact that love is not defined by allowing those whom you love to have what they want when they want it, just because they want it. Some of the most loving moments Between me and my children have been moments when I have said authoritatively and unequivocally no. Amen. And we see that here in this text. Why? Look at this. Look at it again. passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the word of God abides forever. You see what's happening here? This do not love the world. It's not God saying, listen, there's good stuff out there that I want to keep from you. That's the lie of the serpent. This do not love says, that looks good to you and may even feel good to you. But in the end, you will perish. I'm calling you away from it because I actually do love you, and in loving you, I want you to abide in God, to remain in God, and to not perish. Because I desire is that Christ indeed may have the fullness of the reward for which he died. So do not love the world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ God who created this world And everything in it The God who is the king and ruler over all God we bow before you As a humble and grateful people And we bow before you Recognizing that we have a tendency To love the world Ironically, we have to fight to love that first world and fight to love that second world and fight not to love that third one because we are fallen, frail human beings.
2: Grant by your grace
1: that we might have not only the wisdom to see the difference and the faith to trust you, to transform us, but that we might also have the will to deny our flesh and to not love the world. Father, I pray that this would not cause us to flee out of the world, but that we would be wise enough to be in the world and not of it. And that in doing so, we would be distinct and continue to be those who are known by and marked by our love. Love for God. Love for the brother. Love for mankind. Love for the lost. Even love for our enemies. but not love for the world. Grant by your grace that this may be true of us, for we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. They say, Lord,
3: Lord, open the doors. And Matthew's verse, and he said, they will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And Jesus said, and I will say to them, who are you? It's too late.
2: One of the mistakes
4: that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a human being. And and many ways, self, and many paths to to what you call God. That her path might be something else, and when she gets there, she might call it
5: the light. Her loving and her kindness and her generosity, brings us, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or
3: not. And I guess- now to the text. Luke tells us that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He was on his way to his death. He was on his way to fulfill his mission as the lamb of god to be sacrificed there but in one sense he was taking his time not missing any opportunity in galilee to proclaim the kingdom of god so on the way to jerusalem he would stop at every village and every town he would heal the sick and he would teach concerning the kingdom And Luke tells us that while he was making this journey, somebody came up to him with a fascinating question. Listen to the question. And before I ask this question, repeat this question, I want you to, as you hear it, ask yourself for just a moment, because I don't want you to go to sleep for the rest of the message, but ask yourself for just a moment, how would I answer this question? If somebody came up to me and asked me this question, what would I say? Well, what's the question? The person comes and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Have you ever wondered about that? You know, I watch these polls and how people answer them and everything, and it seems like on any ethical issue or any Theological issue, those who are giving a sound, biblical response to the poll are always in a very small minority, usually under
4: 10%.
3: And right there in the capital of Jackson, I found a church
4: with an openly gay pastor whose mission it is to welcome anyone and everyone into their community of faith. Member Perrin Allen grew up in a conservative Christian household but as a gay man, struggle to feel accepted. You have to do things the way the Bible says literally, but I feel like the Bible and Jesus Christ believe in love no matter what, and I feel like I found that in middle.
3: And you wonder when you hear these things, how can so many people be so desperately wrong? Colonel Schwarzenegger
4: is giving his own meaning to heaven and death. During an in-depth conversation with Danny DeVito for Interview Magazine, Schwarzenegger was asked, what's in the future for us? The actor replied that the question reminded him of the time Howard Stern asked him what happens to us when we die. He recalled that he said at the time, nothing, you're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a bleepin' liar.
1: What's wrong with you people?
3: What in the world and what out of the world will happen to these people? Will a majority of people who have ever lived on this planet go to heaven, or will it be just a remnant? Will the majority of people who are alive today go to heaven, or will they go to hell? If you go to funeral services of your friends or acquaintances who die, the only answer you can give to that question is obviously an overwhelming number of people who are now in this earth or recently departing from it will certainly go to heaven. Hell must be reserved for people like Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, and those guilty of the worst kinds of atrocities against humanity. But when you go to funerals, you know, I've never been to a funeral where the minister said, a poor departed brother is roasting right now in hell. <laughs> have you ever heard that? Now, in our supreme doctrine of justification in America is not justification by faith or even justification by works, but justification by death. All you have to do to go to heaven is to die Because, obviously, the overwhelming number of people so broad and wide is the mercy and grace of God that almost everybody gets to heaven. Isn't that right, Jesus? Or is it a minority, a small minority, a few? How does our Lord answer that question? He answers it a couple of ways that I want us to consider. Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said, strive to enter through the broad door, because there is so much room in that broad door. And that road is so wide that it will never get too crowded. Am I inching towards catastrophe? (laughs) You know that's not what he said. He said strive to enter by the nerve. Now there's a parallel passage that Jesus gave at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think you're familiar with it. And her by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Again, this is not my opinion. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus, and He sets before His disciples two contrasts: a narrow way and a broad way, or a straight way and a narrow door, and a wide way and broad door. And the other contrast is with respect to the number of those who go each way. Those who go the broad way that lead to destruction
4: are many. today it's important to sacrifice to take his blood, to make the payment for the black pillage.
3: Those who go the straight way to the narrow gate are few. Now, here's what I hear Jesus say. That most, if not the vast majority of human beings that you know and that I know are on their way to hell. And if they were to die tonight, would go to hell. But also say to me statistically that there's a significant number of people in this room right now who if they died tonight would wake up in hell. Because they're on the broad way that leads to destruction of Jesus is not denying justification by faith when he says strive. To enter in to the narrow gate, as he does here in Luke's version. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but they won't be able. They think they can get through the narrow door by living on Broadway. Did you know that there's a part
6: of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur?
3: Here's the problem. It gets worse. Jesus doesn't stop there about the few and the many, the narrow and the wide. But he said, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And I just say, who's ever in there, please open to us. They say, Lord, Lord, open the door. And Matthew's version, he said, they will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And Jesus said, and I will say to them, Who are you? Please leave, you workers of iniquity. Now, he knows cognitively cognitively, every one of those people that's knocking at the door. But he doesn't know them saving. And so he says, you are not known by me in a redemptive way. So I can't hear your knocking at my door. It's
1: too late. I am a huge fan of the
4: series which Chosen, which shows the humanity of Jesus in a way we haven't seen before and highlights him and the apostles in a different way. What's really revolutionary is the way he wanted everybody to be invited to the table. Take a look.
5: Your obsession with what is clean and unclean was further than God intended. Look at these people. What have you done to help them? Please welcome John to
4: Wow. I, feel like I should bless myself. I feel like, I like doing that. I got some water. here. don't some, got some water. water. I got some water. Here. What are just saying, at least you're not a blonde, blue eyed Jesus, finally. <laughs> yeah, I think we've gotten a little more authentic to uh, who Jesus might have actually been. Jewish. Yeah, there you go.
5: Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't seem to make sense. Joy Bear and Woody Goldberg are speaking well of Jesus, our Savior. And yet at the same time, they're zealous for abortion, the killing of babies in the womb, the normalization of homosexuality, and almost every other anti-Christian liberal cause. So what's going on? We can get some light on the subject by listening to Jonathan Rumi give his testimony about how he came to Christ. Let's see if he says it was because he had a knowledge of his sins, realized that he was justly heading to hell, and understood the blood of the cross, that Jesus was proved for his, that is Jonathan's sins was of the day he repented and put his trust in Jesus and was saved from God's wrath?
4: Not quite. Well, I, you know, I worked here in New York City after college uh, in production. I was a location scout, and that was how I made a, a decent living. Fast forward to the housing market collapsing mm. in 2008. I was broke. I was out of money. I was out of food. I was out of even government assistance for food. Mm. And. The only thing I hadn't done at that point was the thing that was left to do, which was to get on my knees and surrender my entire life and my career and everything that I had up to that point over to God because there wasn't anything I realized I could do on my own. Were you a believer before that? Yeah. yeah, I was raised with a faith from a child, but it really wasn't until after that moment. um, It was about almost six years ago now where I just said, Jesus, I surrender myself to you, take care of everything, and that day, I received this incomprehensible financial miracle that changed my life. And then three months later, I booked the children. I'm He ran out of
2: money,
5: and it came in the mail when he prayed. He didn't say he understood his own sinfulness for a holy God, that Christ died on the cross for a sin, rose again on the third day. He didn't say he repented and put his trust in Jesus and received forgiveness of sins. All that happened was that money came in the mail, and it changed his life. This sort of testimony will get the applause of a godless world. Listen now as I share the biblical gospel with a likable Catholic and with an atheist who's homosexual. You won't believe how that one ended. It was wonderful. And make sure you watch this video right until the end to find out the personal religions of Joy Beyer or Whoopi Goldberg. That one's surprising. Another host of the view, as well as the religion of Jonathan Rooney. And you'll also hear about the special aspect of Jesus that Joy Beyer says she loves.
2: you
5: uh, <laughs> think there's an afterlife? No. I do. And why do you come to that conclusion?
3: I guess because I'm an atheist.
5: So where are you going? You know, I'd like to thank heaven. I think I got some work before I can get there, though, you know, like any person. But and What sort of work do you have to do to get to heaven? After 12 years in a Catholic teaching school, maybe I should know that, but I don't think there's a set amount.
2: I have no reason to believe in God.
5: I can prove God's in about 30 seconds, scientifically. Would you like to hear? Not really. Oh, you're very honest. I appreciate that. Creation proves there's a creator. You can't have a creation without a creator. For nature to make itself is scientifically impossible. So everywhere you look, flowers and birds and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, all these things show you there's a creator, and you know he demands morality because he's written his law upon your heart. You've got a conscience. So I've got a question for you. You're walking along a beach, and you see a sign that says, warning, warning, landmines ahead, turn around. Would you take no notice, or would you turn around? i uh, go turn around. So why would you turn around? Because I don't want to get blown up? Yeah, because you believe the sign. The Bible is God's warning notice to humanity to turn around because we're heading for a big landmine. This is what the Bible says. God has appointed a day in which you'll judge the world in righteousness. You've got two appointments. One is with death. It's appointed a man once to die. And one is with God's judgment. God's appointed a day in which you'll judge the world in righteousness. And you'll keep both appointments. So how are you going to do on judgment day? Do you think you're a good person? Yeah. How many lies have you told in your life? A lot. What do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. So do you still think you're a good person? Well, when you put it into that perspective. No, but God gave us free will, and so you're going to make mistakes along the way. No one's perfect. Let's look at some more mistakes. Have you ever stolen something that belongs to somebody else in your whole life, irrespective of its value? I have, yeah. Appreciate your honesty. <laughs> what do you call someone who steals? A thief. <laughs> what are you? I was a thief at one point in my life. <laughs> oh, a lying thief. Oh, oh, yeah, it's a yeah. uh, Have you ever used God's name in vain? I
2: have.
5: Yeah. Do you love your mum? I do. But you ever use her name as a cuss word? No? Of course you wouldn't, because you respect her. But you don't respect the God that gave your mother. You've taken his holy name and used it in place of a filth word, which is called blasphemy Very serious. When you say, oh, my God, is that an acknowledgment that God exists? Oh, my God? Is that why you say it?
4: Like a... an expletive.
5: An expletive, a cuss word. God. Yeah. Yeah, it's very honest of you to admit that. Some people don't. What it's doing is it's confirming what the Bible says. It says our minds are in a state of hostility towards God. And evidence that we are hostile towards God is that we use his holy name as a cuss word. It's called blasphemy, that. Very serious. Once again, I appreciate your honesty with me. Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I'm gay. Okay. Ever looked with lust? Yes. I'm not judging you. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate regard. (laughs) And you have to face God on judgment day whether you believe in him or not. If he judges you by those ten commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. I'll be guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell. Does that concern you? Not really. Victor, it horrifies me. I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. That breaks my heart. You're a human being with a love of life. Ever heard the Bible verse, the wages of sin is death? It's very famous. I'm not too familiar with it. It's saying God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge who looks at a criminal, has committed multiple murders, but he keeps saying, I'm a good person. Okay. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm giving
5: you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is okay. what you've earned. And Kathy, sin is so serious to a holy God, he's giving you the death sentence. You're on death row, and your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So if you die in your sins, if you're guilty on judgment day, Will you go to heaven or hell? You know, I would like to think that before my time comes, I
4: have the opportunity to perform the act of contrition and go before, you know, priests and my God and kind of confess my sins. And, you know, that's not going to solve all the problems, but I pray I get that opportunity. And from there, I guess we'll, we'll
5: see where I end up. Confession can't help you. It's like saying to a judge, I confess, mm-hmm. I committed the crime. Yeah. He's going to say, you've got a confession out of you. are going to jail. Yeah. So the Bible says, all lions will of their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer. or inherit here God's kingdom. Mm. And the thought of you going to hell breaks my heart. I really care about you. Now, here's the question. You went to Catholic school, was it for 12 years, and went yeah. to church. Mm-hmm. What did God do for guilty sinners so we wouldn't have to go to hell? God did something wonderful. What
4: did God do? I don't
5: know. I don't know what you mean. You actually do know, but because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross?
2: Oh, yes, of
5: course. Yes. He died for our sins. Yes, of
2: course. So what
5: does that mean? How can that help you? You're under God's wrath, heading for hell. How can the death of Jesus help you 2,000 years later? I don't know. i got a feeling you're going to tell me now. Oh, yeah, I'm longing to tell you. Kathy, if you can get a grip of what I'm going to tell you, it's okay. going to change everything for you. Okay. So don't let anything distract you. All
2: right, hit me
5: with that. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law... Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said, it is finished just before he died. He was saying, paid in full. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. He said, Victor, you're guilty, but you can leave because someone paid your fine. And it's legal. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off you, let you live forever, well, because Jesus paid the fine in his nice blood, rose from the dead and defeated death, and if you are simply, according to the Bible, Repent of your sins, that is, turn from lips more than confession. Turn from sin, and then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. God will remit your sins in an instant and grant you everlasting life as a free gift, not because you're good, but because he's good and kind and rich in mercy. It's called grace, or God's amazing grace. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus destroyed death. That's what the Bible says. Is this making sense? It is it's making sense, yeah. When you put it into perspective like that, yeah, it makes sense. If you're going to jump out of a plane 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? Save your life. Yeah, and your motivation is fear, and that fear is your friend. It's not your enemy because it's making you put on a parachute. And Victor, because I love you, I've tried to put the fear of God in you today. i will try to make you a little scared, hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy, because it'll make you serious with the God that gave you life, and it'll drive you to the foot of the cross where you'll find everlasting life. I'm kind of like having a difficult time with God because I just lost my mother. I'm so sorry. I lost my mum and dad too. Death takes everybody. I Two months ago. Two months ago. Yeah. But it makes you think about your own mortality. That I'm you're going gonna... like I wish for an afterlife
1: because I do want to see my mom again.
5: Yeah. Was your mom a Christian?
1: Oh yeah.
5: Well you better repent and trust in Jesus <laughs> if you want to see your mom again. Let me give you a quick summary. You're going to die because you've sinned against God after death of judgment. God doesn't want you to go to hell. He's provided a savior. If you'll simply turn from all sin, lying, stealing, blasphemy, adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, everything you know is wrong, turn from that and trust in Jesus. God will give you a personal miracle where he'll create a clean heart in you so you love that which is right. That'll be your own personal miracle. So is this making sense? I know. I mean, I think me being gay, should not have anything to do with it? You no, know, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. God will change your heart. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We're sinners in God's eyes. We all deserve hell, but God's rich in mercy, and he'll grant us everlasting life as a free gift if of we'll simply let go of our sin. so believe the warning sign on the beach. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus, and God will make you a brand-new person on the inside. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're going to think about what we talked about?
3: I actually will.
5: Would you be embarrassed if I pray with you? Go for it. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray for Victor. Thank you for his open heart today, and I pray you'll confirm to him the truth of what was talked about today, and that you'll think of his past sins, his secret sins, of your wrath against sin, but your love expressed in the cross. And this day may he be born again, given a new heart and new desires. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen.
5: You're going to think about what we talked about? I definitely will, yeah. Kathy, when are you going to repent and trust in Jesus instead of trusting yourself? I'd like to say today. Can I give you a book that I've written called Volatile? It shows you that 2,500 years ago, God named the countries that would attack Israel in the last days. It shows that God knows the future, and it will boost your faith in God's word, because only God knows the future. Can I give it to you? It's completely free. Sure.
2: Thank you.
5: And I want to give you a little booklet called Save Yourself from Pain, Principles of Christian Growth, and a Gospel of John. Do you know what a Gospel of John is? No. It's the fourth book of the New Testament and you're gonna love it. And you're gonna get two five dollar in and out cards as a thank you for doing this interview. All right. Sounds
2: okay. good. Nice
5: to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Have thank you. Joy Bear, as we've seen, is Catholic. And so is Ruby Goldberg. The other two hosts of the view are also Catholic, it would seen and so is Jonas Lundy. Uh-huh. I'm like, nope, nope,
4: save it for the priest. Can <laughs> you <laughs> have fun with that <laughs> <laughs> Then i got to ask you for it later, so. <laughs> True. You have to I think what was fascinating to me is growing up, I always saw the blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And now I go to black Catholic church, and Jesus is brown. In the clip that we saw earlier, which shows Jesus speaking up for marginalized people, the poor, etc. Uh, which is the Jesus that we love. Uh, not everyone interprets that message the same way. these say religion in this country even seems weaponized
5: at times. Uh, he is the socialist Jesus, the one who rebukes those weaponized, bigoted fundamentalists. And that Jesus will always give applause of the sinful world. We are giving away free of charge 12 million incredibly designed gospel tracks to coincide with the 2024 Olympics. Three billion people, that's 3,000 million, will watch the Olympics. And while they're watching, we will be ready with these high-quality, irresistible tracks. We are sending a team to Paris and hosting a free conference, but if you can't join us in Paris and you want to give these away in your own country, we are printing them in Europe, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, and in the United States. Our first print is 12 million, and we're giving them away free of charge. You just pay for the shipping. For details on how to join us in Paris or how to get these tracks in your own country, go to livingwaters.com forward slash Paris. Living Waters exists as a non-profit ministry to help you grow faith. There are three things to help you do just that. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, everything you've ever wanted to know about the Christian faith, and the Starter Kit, four of our most popular gospel tracks. These and much more are available at livingwaters.com.
1: How did Noah fit the
6: animals on the ark? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit our full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. Have you ever heard someone claim Noah could never have fit all the animals onto the ark? But actually, this would have been no problem for Noah. The ark was much bigger than most people think. When families visit the life-size ark at Ark Encounter, they're surprised by how huge it is.
2: Also, Noah
6: didn't have to take that many animals on board. He only needed to take two of every kind, not species. And he didn't need fish or marine creatures. Noah probably only needed about 1,400 animal kinds. That's less than
4: 7,000 animals in total. There was plenty
6: of room on board the ark for all the animal kinds that God sent to Noah.
4: Want to know more about Noah's ark and the flood? Bring the family to the ark encounter, where kids are free. Plan your visit at (laughs) AnswersRadio.com. The Chosen is a
6: TV series that is supposed to be about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the eyes of the people who met him. It is said that the stories come straight from the Gospels. But no, the stories embellish on and change the Gospel accounts. To give a few examples, when Jesus speaks the Beatitudes for the first time, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount to the crowds in Galilee as in Matthew 5-7. through He literally tells Matthew to write them down. He later tells Matthew, I'm here to start a revolution. Jesus never said that. He said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, she says, You're a prophet, and you're to preach at me. He says no, but yes. That's exactly why he was there. He preached to her whole town. He said in Mark 1.38 that he came to preach. There are few scenes in The Chosen that are anything like the Bible. When The Chosen released their trailer for Season 3, there was a scene where Jesus says, I am the Moses. That's not in the Bible. But many pointed out it is in the Book of Mormon. By the way, Mormons produce this show. Writer and director Dallas Jenkins got online to say, Of course, I'm not quoting from the Book of Mormon. I've never read the Book of Mormon. But the point still stands, that when you go beyond what is written, the results are not of God. Paul rebuked the Corinthians in this way. If one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, you bear this beautifully. Do not settle for counterfeits. When we understand the text Genesis chapter 8 Then God remembered Noah And all the beasts and all the cattle That were with him in the ark And God caused a wind to pass over the earth And the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded from the earth, going forth and returning. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. Then it happened at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it went out flying back and forth Mm -hmm. until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of its foot, so it returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he stretched out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark to himself. Then he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. Now it happened in the six hundred and first year, in the first month On the first day of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and that they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the ground went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. While all the days of the earth remain... ...seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky... With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. As with the green plant, I give all to you. However, flesh with its life, that is, its blood, you shall not eat. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing I will require it. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, indeed I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Then God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am giving to be between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I put my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it will be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy a flesh. So the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was scattered abroad. Then Noah began to be a man of the land and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Genesis chapter 10. Now these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog, and Madai and Javan, and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. From these the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his tongue, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Reamah and Sebtekah. And the sons of Reamah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush was the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went out to Assyria, and built Nineveh, and rehoboth and Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. Mizraim was the father of Ludim, and Anamim, and Laabim and Naphtahim, and Pathrathim, and Casluhim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kapturim. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite, and the Arvadite and the Zemurite and the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of the Canaanite were scattered. The border of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and zeboim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their tongues, by their lands, by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children, were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah was the father of Eber. Now two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan was the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Hazar Mabeth and Jera, and Haderim and Uzal and Diklah, and Obal and Abimael and Sheba, and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their tongues, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, by their nations. And out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Genesis, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly.' and they had brick for stone, and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpikshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpikshad, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Arpikshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpikshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ryu. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ryu, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Ryu lived 32 years and became the father of Serug, And Reu lived two hundred and seven years after he became the father of Serug, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Serug lived thirty years and became the father of Nayor. And Sirig lived two hundred years after he became the father of Nayor, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Nayor lived twenty-nine years and became the father of Terah. And Nayor lived one hundred and nineteen years after he became the father of Terah and he became the father of other sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years, and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah his father in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nair's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah... For 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. In the seventh episode of The Chosen, the show reimagined the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus as found in John 3. This is where it is written, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is such a well-known gospel verse that show creator Dallas Jenkins wanted to be accurate. There's a great weight and responsibility when it comes to shooting the scene almost more than any other scene we shoot, And so he really wanted to get it right. But if you compare the scene with John 3, 1 through 18, you'll see the two conversations are quite different. Even the setting has changed. Lines have been added and moved around so that when Jesus gets to the words of John 3:16, they have an altogether different context. At one point, Nicodemus asks, is the kingdom of God really coming? And Jesus says, what does your heart tell you? What is this, Disney? At the end of the scene, Nicodemus bows before Jesus to confess he is the Christ. But Jesus says, what are you doing? You don't have to do that. Everyone has to do that. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the chosen was confronted about this, they said, did it happen? We don't know, but it's very on brand. (laughs) What? When did Jesus ever tell anyone they don't have to bow? This response is a great slogan for their show, Did It Happen? We Don't Know. Let's see them put that on a t-shirt. One of the shirts they sell has this line from their Jesus, Get Used to Different. Ironic, since this is a different Christ than the Christ of the Bible. Accept no substitutes when we understand the text.
5: I didn't know it came for the animals. This is Ken Hand, co-author of the
4: faith-affirming book, A Flood of Evidence.
6: Many sceptics claim that eight people couldn't have cared for all the animals aboard Noah's Ark. But there really weren't that many animals to care for. Since Noah only had to take two of every kind of land animal, there were probably less than 7,000 animals to take care of. Noah and his family could have easily cared for this number. And likely, they would have used labor-saving devices, such as gravity-fed water troughs, and automatic feeding troughs that only require occasional refilling. Slope floors could force waste into central gutters for easy disposal. You see, caring for the animals on the ark would not have been a problem for Noah and his family.
4: Discover more about the design of Noah's ark when you visit our information-packed website at answersradio.com. Learn more at answersradio.com.
7: As you no doubt know, Alistair Begg dropped an A-bomb that caused
4: a little bit of an
7: explosion in evangelicalism.
4: But the fact of the matter is, I'm not ready to repent over this.
7: I don't have to. And there's actually some good news that comes out of it. I believe that the A-bomb revealed there is actually a general consensus amongst conservatives that Al's advice to Grandma was wrong. That's what our first Al Bag video endeavored to do, interact with Al's defense of his position respectfully. And I shared how I actually disagreed with him on the issue. But now we're confronted with the fallout from the A bomb. And while I can't say the fallout is actually more dangerous than the bomb itself, I think we're facing several issues that could cause even more fracturing in conservative evangelical circles. Please note, everything that I'm about to say is not about Al or his position or mine. I haven't changed my tune about the issue myself. This video is focusing on something different. Christian unity in light of disagreement. Make no mistake. There are times when we need to divide from one another. Believer from other professing believer. But because these brave new world issues, they are so new. Might I suggest we need to guard against drawing lines of division unnecessarily or too quickly? Why? Jesus made it really clear in his high priestly prayer that he desires his body to be unified, just as he and the Father are one. And again, that doesn't mean we never divide, but division should be the last thing that we want. Our heartbeat should be Christian unity and charity and fellowship. Now, I understand you might be saying, oh, great, here we go. More compromise, having, air quotes, conversations about issues. It's code for, listen to me, and agree, or else, I get that. We've seen progressives use words like dialogue and conversations and hearing stories as a cudgel to say, you're gonna listen to me until you submit to my will. So while I recognize the inherent potential, slippery slope of my encouragement, it is my hope that we can perhaps just slow our roll and study these fallout issues not the initial issues, the fallout issues together until we have consensus or we determine we need to legitimately mark and divide. The Christian fallback position is unity until proven otherwise. Because these issues are barely a decade old, maybe we need to look back in time and see how our ancestors actually engaged with contentious issues. Let's go back in time just for a moment. Tabletop Magazine talked about the timeline of the Westminster Assembly. Here's what they said. The assembly met 1,330 times over 10 years. It took them 10 years. To sort out Anglican issues, the divines gathered Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. with a lecture and a prayer followed by a sermon, and then they held committee meetings. The plenary sessions began at 9 a.m., and it was a debate until lunchtime. After lunch, there were more committee meetings until about 5 p.m., sometimes later, at least 2,400 people were present on 11,300 separate occurrences during the assembly.
1: Whoa, I get
7: it. Uh, they don't have the Internet and social media. Nevertheless, it's really clear. These guys took some time. They considered these issues to be weighty, and they strive for truth and the unity. Let me take you back even further. It took the church five years, maybe more, to unanimously agree that Arius was a Christological heretic. The final decision was rendered at the Council of Nicaea in 325, which ran from May 20th through August 25th of that year. In other words, they took their time. Now, what does this have to do with us? It tells us the church... We've always had to deal with controversy and conflict and confusion and theological heresy. It also tells us, though, that the church took time for careful and prayerful and thoughtful and diligent study of these really weighty and very important subjects. Now, I know our current issues are the tip of the cultural sphere. We can't ignore that. They are important and even sometimes urgent, but the church... It's gonna endure long after these issues fade into the background. The church is gonna endure long after every single civilization collapses, and we might do well to learn from our ancestors that thoughtful deliberation isn't necessarily our enemy. History happens in time. Things change from day to day, so let's not allow clamoring voices on the internet to force us to draw lines, take sides, until we've had some time to be thoughtful. And as we unwind these wells of twine, as we patient with one another, we simply have to resist the temptation to be like a contentious cable news show and render declarative verdicts and castigate those with whom we disagree it's almost certain you know someone who disagrees with you on one aspect of all of these issues which I'm going to set forth. And at this moment, none of these issues rises to the level of heresy. Nobody should be labeled a heretic just yet. And if you happen to have thought through all of these issues already and you've got it sorted, I offer you my non-snarky congratulations. Seriously. Well done. Good on you. But would you please give everyone a time to catch up? Remember, Jesus' high priestly prayer, it reveals the heart of our Savior. He wants us to be unified, just as he and the Father are unified. So let's see if we can study and deliberate. Let's contend earnestly um, but not contentiously. Let's do it lovingly and patiently and with a little time. I really think we're going to have consensus. And if not, at least we'll have approached the vision the way we are by studying every single aspect of this issue intensely and deeply. So to that end, I'd like to offer a framework that I believe will be helpful in answering two categories of fallout questions. Remember, I'm, I'm, I'm not altering my position on whether or not I think it is appropriate for a Christian to attend an unbiblical marriage. I'm talking about the fallout from it. So here's category number one. What about other non-biblical weddings? I mean, hey, if we're going to be consistent. You don't go to one unbiblical wedding. You shouldn't go to a wedding that isn't biblical, like unequally yoked, or somebody who marries somebody who's unbiblically divorced. Or what about a ceremony at a false religion? Hold on, not done. What about baking a cake for an unbiblical wedding? What about pronouns? What about DEI training? Each of these questions, they really have to be considered on their own merit. Because this isn't always that. For example, is there a difference in attending the sinful wedding versus baking a cake for that wedding? If so, what's the difference? How might someone conclude baking a cake is fine, but actually attending the marriage is not okay? Is that consistent? We need to sort these things out. But I think there's another set of questions that need to be considered. Questions like, what do we do with somebody like Alistair Begg? What do we do with another believer? When we disagree not on the issue but on the application of our agreed upon theology on this subject matter let me explain that there is virtually no confusion on the issue of sexuality and genders amongst conservatives alistair is squarely on the right side of the issue per se it's his application that most of us think he got wrong so now the question is how wrong is that application uh, the issue, the application specifically, does it rise to the level of sin? Or is it, as our claims, a non-sin issue, say perhaps a Romans 14 adiaphoron. Now, I have an opinion on all of the aforementioned questions, and even though I'm right, due to the fact that I'm a podcaster. It's not my intention to pontificate. My goal, my hope, is that I might offer some thoughts that might stave off unnecessary acrimony, fighting and debatious. So if you're hoping for a table-pounding, definitive rendering on all of these issues, mm, this isn't going to be all that satisfying. But if you'd like to hear a framework that just might help you resolve some of these issues in your own mind, and maybe even keep us from dividing until we arrive at that consensus, I believe we will achieve. Then I hope you will enjoy these seven big questions that I think will help us sort this. Let me just say once again, I'm not trying to tip my hand or shove you in any direction. I'm trying to provoke all of us to study these issues as biblically as possible. And I think these questions will help. Big question, big question, Finally, for real. number one, when is something sin and when is something adiaphora? No, I wasn't speaking in tongues. Adiaphora its a theological term that means disputable dispensations. These are gray areas. The German theologians called them mitteldingen, and things. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, four chapters dedicated to this subject to help Christians find unity, or to grow together in trying to apply agreed-upon theology. The Christians in the 21st century were disputing whether or not a believer can buy meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Some said, yeah, others said, absolutely not. Paul parachutes in to explain that there can be some applications. Everybody agreed that sacrificing an animal to an idol Um, You're partnering with the devil. Everybody agreed on that, but not everybody agreed on the application. Can we buy the meat in the marketplace? That should sound familiar. We all agree on biblical writings are just that. But this is the application that we're dealing with. And if we are going to have a unity, I think this is the key question. Is what Alistair Begg advised a sin or is it a gray area? How do we sort it? Well, I, I don't think we sort it the way that mostly, not exclusively, but mostly the way we've been dealing with it on the Internet. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. Adiapha demands that we marshal our Bible verses. This is a biblical debate. So if you're on the side that says, Encouraging somebody to go to a sinful wedding is sin. Bring your Bible verses. Similarly, if you don't think that this is a sin, bring your Bible verses. I'm not going to lay it out. That isn't the point of this particular video. It's to help us to engage in this issue with our Bibles in hand. And please note, for whatever this is worth, subjective, I grant you, I've probably spoken to no less actually did them up, no less than 15 very conservative biblical pastors, and I've had a range of responses. Uh, There are some who say, yeah, it was a sin. There are others who say, no, it wasn't. There are even others that say, oh, it's not sin, it's not adiaphora, but it's something. Okay, based on my experience, what that tells me is We've got to get this sorted. Let's bring our Bible verses to get the conclusion to the question, is this a sin or is it an uh, opera? But there's six more questions that I think will be helpful. Big question number two, uh, what are the essentials versus non-essentials? In other words, we need to do theological triage. There are essentials. These are the issues. If you biff it, you're going to hell. Okay, those are the biggies. Non-essentials, well, issues we can disagree on. They could be the secondary or tertiary level where you and I can disagree on something like baptism. We've seen that, haven't we? John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, believers, pedo-baptism, they still did stuff together. They loved one another, even though they disagreed because it was a non-essential. We need to ask ourselves, to what level does this advice Right, Got to slot it somewhere. That'll be helpful. Big question number three. Got to talk about marriage. It is, after all, what brings us together Mm -hmm. today. If we don't really understand marriage and God's intentions and, dare I say, feelings Mm -hmm. about it, I, 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 I think we might lose our way. A biblical marriage is supposed to be procreation, partnership, pleasure, and a picture of the gospel. And by defining what marriage is, not in society's eyes, but God's eyes, it's going to help us determine what our presence at a wedding means. Historically, our culture generally agreed, attending a wedding is a witness. It was an agreement with what is taking place. And that's why we used to ask, hey, if there's anybody here who has any objections, but ultimately, culture's opinion doesn't matter, God's opinion is the only opinion that matters. So before you decide whether this is a big deal, it's sinful, it's a spend time considering God's opinion about marriage. Big question number four. This is big I'm not sure I've heard anybody talk about this. A buddy of mine shared this thought with me and I think he's bang on. Here's the big question. What is love? Is it possible? that we perhaps have failed to remember the biblical definition of love. This is not to suggest that love never has any emotional feelings, but biblical love is defined for us as the highest form of love. In 1 John 4, in this is love, that God had warm, fuzzy feelings. Nope. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, and here's how we demonstrated it by giving his son as a propitiation for sinners. In other words, love is doing what is best for somebody despite how I feel. And true love isn't lying. True love is actually truthful. And that will help us to determine if using someone's preferred pronouns is actually loving. Is it compassionate? to affirm somebody's confusion or even their sin, we have to ask ourselves the question, have we bought into the Beatles' while All you need is love. And by the way, right after they sang that, they broke up.
4: All of the gloppy,
7: sentimental, feeling songs about love that have perhaps informed us to think, boy, if I do anything that makes anybody feel love, that's not loving. First discipline is loving. And it's bound to make the sinner feel bad. And that doesn't mean we're not being compassionate. It means we're being loving. We need to remember what biblical love is. Big question number five. What have we believers been called to? Are we supposed to be some right? Or are we a go-along-to-get-along people? Consider Luke chapter 10. Through 20. Jesus was constantly on this. A, a Christian, a real Christian, denies himself, takes up his execution device and follows after him. He puts his hand to the plow. He refuses to look back. He lets the dead bury their own dead. In other words, we believers have been called to die to self. We believers have been called to a life. That likely will end in persecution for which, by the way, Jesus told us in the Beatitudes, we will be blessed. I think this is an important question because, look, these issues are painful. They have implications. You could lose your job. You could lose a family member. This is big stuff. We've got to remember what we have been called to. And big question number six which is related to five, but slightly different. When Jesus said that he will even divide families, we have to ask the question, what cultural issue, what is the scenario that is worthy of this division or persecution? Don't get me wrong. The exclusivity of Jesus, his stumbling block message that says you can't earn salvation, that is plenty divisive, but I'm talking about cultural issues, unbiblical marriages, pronoun usage, DEI training, baking cakes, we've got to answer the question. And and I'm not trying to slant this. I'm I'm trying to make the question clear. If we're not willing to be persecuted for this, make that case, is there anything that qualifies as persecution-worthy? And what would that be? Again, not... Not trying to push you in a certain direction but to be confronted with jesus warning we will be divided and we gotta ask uh, what point are we willing to let family divide from us and by the way if you don't go to an unbiblical wedding and they ghost you you're not dividing you're just not going to their wedding they're making the decision to ghost you but that's an aside big question number seven are we going to pretend that there aren't any conflicting, really hard emotional values in play. Now, please note, as I said in the other video, I don't think anything should override what is true and right. Compassion, love, sentimentality, I I, I don't think that should override what God wants us to do. But what I'm asking is, shouldn't we be aware that it's painful when somebody's family is shattered or a man Is confronted with losing his job or a Christian gets smeared online should we or should we not allow those in really painful positions to sort out a wise non-sinful strategy with their own pastors which by the way is probably the place where we need to do most of this sorting I know there's a lot going on on the internet and that's fine but the podcasters and the YouTube video makers, including myself, do not take first place in front of the pulpit and the local pastor. We do well to sort these issues out there. It's a lot different working through these issues eye to eye and face to face than simply online. But there you have it, my seven big questions that I think are a framework should be helpful. So brothers and sisters, what do you say? Let's study the issues. Let's contend without being contentious. We will find a resolution on all these issues. So let's not form yet another circular firing squad with people that we are going to be spending eternity with.
2: Discuss.
0: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M truthbetoldradio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa canchoa the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S A N D S T U F F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Once again, I'm the host of Truth Be Told Radio, Melissa Canachola. And like I said, you can contact me and um hope you'll do that. Um, I'm also on a thing called Kofi at K O F I, and it's a, a place where you could um, give support for my show if you like, and check that out. There's different ways to do it, and and I'm gonna go out and say bye for now. Thanks for listening, and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.